Hello, beautiful light-filled souls. My name is Trisha Barker, and I'm excited to let you know that the second annual online near-death experience summit is coming up this June 23rd with speakers, Dr. Raymond Moody, Lisa Smart, Dr. Jeffrey Long, Dr. Eben Alexander, Karen Newell, Nancy Rines, Howard Storm, Paul Perry, David Ditchfield, Leslie Lupo, Kimberly Clark Sharp, Dr. Tony Chicoria, John Burke, Jose Hernandez, and me, your host. There are plenty of videos to check out ahead of time, but please look at this link and we'd love to have you join. You can get your questions answered by the speakers at this event. And thank you. Thank you so much for your support of my memoir, Angels in the OR, which launched last month. It is such a pleasure to connect with readers, and many people have enjoyed the Audible. So if you don't have an Audible subscription, you can have three, 30 days um, for free and get my book that way. But I would love to hear from you, and I hope you enjoyed this recording. You can check out these interviews on my YouTube channel. I'm converting many of them over to podcast, but enjoy. Hello, beautiful, lightful souls. My name is Trisha Barker, and I'm so excited to be here with Raymond Moody. He is the pioneer in near-death experience research and coined the term near-death experience, and he means a lot to me because in 94, when I had my near-death experience and I was laying in bed in a body cast, I picked up some of his books and I felt comforted and happy and really assured that at least there was this interest in what had happened to me and I felt validated. And I know you've done that for so many near-death experiencers. Have you felt that and heard that from experiencers over the years that they felt validated because of your work? Yes, yes, that was very nice that uh, so many people wrote and said that uh, they had um, had such an experience and it was good to hear somebody uh, talking about it. And that uh, actually goes for my medical school professors too. When I um, entered medical school in 1972, I had already been investigating this topic for 10 years. And so the um, when I went to medical school, my friends that I had known in medical and and that when I was growing up, had spread the word among the professors that this medical student was coming in September who had uh, had had interviewed people with these experiences. And um, eight of my professors in the first two weeks uh, called me and thanked me and said either that they had had such experiences themselves or they had heard it from their patients. So um, isn't that amazing? Was very isn't that amazing how I find that when I tell my story publicly, a lot of people want to tell me their spiritual experiences or their shared death experiences. Do you find that people have wanted to come to you in mass and tell you their experiences? Yes, and thank goodness for it. <laughs> uh, that is just a, it's a uh, very nice thing. I mean, I've had I've uh, interviewed thousands and thousands of people with these people with these experiences, and I. I really can't wait till the next one. It's, it's always so, very exciting. So I've heard you say that in an interview, maybe on Skeptico, that each time you hear a new death, near death experience story, you get excited. I want to ask you a question, though. Do you ever get frustrated with language's ability to? 
capture and not capture things like telepathy or eternal love or these experiences that are such a reality for us during our near-death experience and we struggle with mm -hmm. language to tell people about our experiences i've even heard some near-death experiencers say that they've heard their name on the other side and their name was not in english not an intelligible oh. you know sound oh interesting well yeah that is the big problem because uh, all over the world no matter how our articulate they may be people say that uh, they just can't put this into words and we are on the way to a part resolution of that I've uh, for many many years I've been working on a system of, um, of well I would call it a logical system for how to think about uh, transcendent experiences and already thus far basically I think that by um, reworking our minds a little bit to think about things that uh, are beyond the literal domain of, domain of language, that we can um, actually prepare people to uh, articulate their experiences in an entirely new way. That has happened once already with a man um, that about uh, I, ten years, eight years before had been to one of my seminars where I taught this uh, method and then on October 15th, 2015, he called me and he uh, told me that he had had a near-death experience from a terrible illness he had and um, realized when he was in that state of existence that, that as he put it, I was right that you've got to You've got to think of a whole different domain of language before we can uh, really make sense of these things. So, so that's on the way. Tell me more. There are entirely new ways. Tell me more about mm -hmm. that because one, I can give you one little piece of my dear death experience, and you can tell me right, how right. you might frame it in language. So. Uh -huh. The angels, this is the beginning of my near-death experience, and I don't even know if they're angels in the biblical sense. These large light beings sent mm -hmm. this energy through the back of my surgeons and into my body, and this energy and light that they were sending filled up my whole body on the operating table, and I knew that I would walk, I knew that the bone fragments would be picked out, and that I would be fine. So this light was intelligence, it was healing, it was many things at once. It was so hard for me to describe what that was. Yes. So is there a yeah. better way to describe that piece? You know, I think, I think there is. Uh, the trouble is it takes time. It's, um, it, basically what I would say is that we can reformat our minds to think about these things in an entirely new way. But it creates the difficulty that uh, Plato was first uh, described. And by the way, I was inspired in this work by Plato. I, I came, yes. a, a, uh, I found out about the near-death experiences when I was a philosophy student at the University of Virginia, and I read in Plato's Republic a story of a man who had what we would today call a near-death experience. And I asked my professor about this and he um, he said that yeah these early Greek philosophers were interested in cases of people who had apparently died and been revived and uh, so I had known about it, about it in that 
connection, but in 1965, three years later, after, uh, I, three years after I found out about it, I um, heard from one of my professors that in Charlottesville there was Dr. George Ritchie, who at that time was a professor of psychiatry at UVA, who had had such an experience. And in um, the spring of 1965, George Ritchie was the first living person I ever heard this from. And um, so when I heard it from George, to this day, George is the finest person that I ever knew. He's just this really great human being. And uh, the fact that, I mean, I could tell when I first heard him talk that he was for real. I mean, I didn't know what the explanation of this was, but I knew that George Ritchie was an honest and, and sincere man. And uh, so that was really what um, got me started on this. And then when I was a professor of philosophy, I heard a lot of these from my students and fellow faculty members. So. And it was no big deal because by 1974, when I wrote that book, um, there were just so many people who had had this experience that I knew full well that when it was published that uh, anybody who would just put a little effort in trying to uh, verify or disconfirm what I said would soon realize that I was right on that. And that's what happened. It was so I, I know just that. within a yeah, I got a lot of a lot of letters from doctors just within those first few weeks saying that they had seen this in their patients too. Interesting. So I had read that about your fascination with Plato's Republic and I took a philosophy of the mind course as soon as I get to college and I was an agnostic before I had my near death experience. So I I read all of this, was not convinced by philosophy, but I was convinced enough that I should remain open-minded. And so I was an open-minded agnostic before my near-death experience. The first moments outside of my body, I was convinced because I felt and knew that I was experiencing a reality beyond this reality. Have yeah. you heard that term many yeah, times from near-death experiences? Yeah, I think people who have not had such an experience tend to imagine that it might be dreamlike or like a dream. Right. But in fact, I'll say the opposite, that um, by comparison with the state of consciousness they reach when they leave their body and go into this light, that this world that we're in now is dreamlike. And um, I hear people say things like what they experienced was more real than real. It's yes. uh, hyper-reality, as people describe it. So yes. are you... Are you convinced, I think I heard on one uh, interview not too long ago, that uh, maybe you're not fully convinced of an afterlife. Are you convinced after hearing all these stories and all of these experiences from people? I mean, do you have an assurance about it? Well, you know, um, I, you will learn obviously in about 40 years here about being 70 and uh, <laughs> you learn at 70 that you're just finished with I mean, I just say what is, and um, and I'm not trying to be evasive here, but I can honestly tell you several things. Number one, yes, I do now accept that there is an afterlife, and secondly, that um, 
if you ask me, do I believe it, I'd have to say no, because, you know, when you say you believe something, that I am, implies to me that it's like you internalize it, right? Well, where I am with this is that I just give up. I don't know what else to say. I can't tell you that I've internalized it like a belief, but I don't know what else to say. For example, um, some years ago, uh, now, maybe five, six, seven years ago, I um, was in Italy and a surgeon came up to me after my lecture and you could tell that he had been through something which had really changed him and so basically he told me that uh, sometime before he had been doing an elective operation on a young man who actually was in good health overall but in the surgery he, the patient had a cardiac arrest and the doctor wasn't able to revive him so he was um, very upset and at that point uh, the operating room door swung open and a woman came in yelling and it, at first he thought she was psychotic but um, as he listened to her he realized she was saying my husband is not dead and uh, she said I was in the waiting room and my husband came to me and said for me to come in here and tell you he's not dead wow. and the doctor resumed the resuscitation and to his astonishment the patient did the heart started beating again and he was there when the patient regained consciousness and he said the patient told me he said I was up above my body seeing you down there and I could tell you thought I was dead but I kept trying to tell you I'm not dead but you wouldn't hear me and so um, I went out into the waiting area to try to tell my wife to come in here and tell you I'm not dead and so but I could give you many others like that oh that's an amazing I, one it is, but I have many others like that where the doctors in some way empathically co-participated in their dying patients, near-death experiences. And so I just don't know what else to say. I have always realized that uh, contrary to the common way we have of debating about this, go actually the way we have of debating about it goes back to Plato and Democritus, who were roughly contemporaries, and Plato looked at these things and took them at face value as indicators of an afterlife, but Democritus, who had figured out that everything is made of atoms, explained it in those terms, that what we call a near-death experience, or what they, they studied, um, he thought was just a sign of some residual biological activity in the body and that form of debate has been unchanged for 2300 years that's the way we talk we argue and debate about it and the trouble is that it's just totally uh, off base because the bystanders at the death of someone else very often have all of these elements that we identify as a near-death experience and yet they are not ill or injured so there's no oxygen cut off to their brains so why um right you know, the, sh the shared yeah and and so really um i kind of give up i'm out of um i, I had always known that because one of my own medical school professors in december of 72 or 
January of 73, uh, had told me about her own experience as she was resuscitating her mother. She herself had no oxygen compromise to the brain, yet she had a florid near-death experience in the process of trying to resuscitate her own mother. So something else is going on here, and the trouble is we don't really have the logical categories to figure it out. You probably studied David Hume a little bit in your yes. course, just a little bit. And, uh, David Hume, I think, said it best, and uh, Hume was a friend of Ben Franklin's to date him for you, but he was a Scottish um, philosopher, and he uh, he pointed out that the logic we have and the mind we have is just not set up for thinking logically about life after death. But I say that that, that Hume is absolutely right, that, but that nonetheless that we can fix that, that we have entirely new ways of um, thinking with genuine rational rigor about these big questions. Now I want to know, incidentally, what did you end up studying? You studied philosophy of mind a little bit. What did you um, end up doing with your career? Um, that's a good part of my near-death experience. So I was going to be a lawyer. I had my near-death experience when I was a senior in college, and I had an English degree that I was about to complete with a minor in psychology. I did not want to be a teaching. I didn't want to go into teaching because that was too low-paying. When I was in the afterlife and I went to that presence of God, I was told I had to come back and be a teacher, not a spiritual teacher, a teacher. an actual teacher. And I was like, no, God, no, no, no. So I argued with God in the afterlife, and God said, nope, you're going back, and these students need you. And it has been the most fulfilling career. So I've taught at all levels now at the college level. And it's, I feel as if I am being worked through many times when I'm working with students. Yeah. And this is something that as far as language goes that I'm really curious about. So I saw the angelic beings working through my surgeons. My surgeons were totally not open to the other side, but they were great spinal surgeons, neurosurgeons. And they, um, especially Laura Flan, Dr. Laura Flan, she was kind of pioneering new things with backs and, and back surgery at that time. So I have this belief that we don't know how the afterlife and how these beings can work through us and when they're working through us. And you don't have to be this spiritual, you know, like person necessarily to have them work through you. Maybe if you're just in motion, my surgeons were just in motion doing their job and they were assisted uh, from the other side. So there's so many ways to talk about this. I mean, have you, have you thought that question through? Like people who say that they're very open to presences and then people who say that they're not, but yet they still might be worked through. Well, I agree with you that currently we have no way to think logically of how that happens. But I will say where I have come in my thought about this, Tricia, and I think it's probably not too far from what you've come up with because a lot of people eventually reach this and basically to me I think that uh, you know Elie Wiesel he was a little before your time you, mm -hmm. you do know oh, yes, uh, yes. Ellie, great writer yeah great writer and sadly his books have sort of dropped out now but he's just this great writer and Ellie was in the Auschwitz uh, or 
camps and, and survived and yes. just a wonderful scholar and a wonderful man. And in one of Ellie's books, he says, God made man because he loves stories. And you know, that's where I've come to it. And in regard to your philosophy of mind course and what is the nature of the self, well, I think again, David Hume probably said it best that, you know, he said, whenever I look inside of myself, I never find any underlying thing. I just, it's always just immediate specific impressions and, and sense data and so on. And, um, but where I've come to it is I think that, um, this is a theater that we're in, that these are the movies. And, and Ellie said, as I said, God made man because he loves stories. And uh, I think, what is your personal identity but your story, right? It's like what Tricia Barker is, basically, is the story, a story. And, yes. and you're watching the story. And, uh, and God's watching the story, too. Yeah, right. I sort of figure God is watching all the different stories and watching how they weave together too which must be pretty amazing movie it, it must be and you know that was one thought that i had that was my first thought when i came back to this body is the nurses were feeding me ice chips and i had to say my name and i said i remember her name and they said no you have to say her name or you have to say your name but i kept calling myself her because i felt like i was a consciousness way outside of this body that I now had to inhabit again. And it felt like something I was just going to put on a costume for a while and it didn't feel like yes. me. Yeah. And, and so that, that identity changes, I think for near death experiencers, we do feel that limitation and coming back. There was this wonderful woman I knew in New York. She was an actress and she was famous for playing a certain role. And, um, after, my book was published, I, I forget when this was, maybe 80s, or um, she had uh, contacted me, and I met her in New York, told, she told me about her near-death experience, and she was famous for playing a certain role, and what she said, and I've heard this from other actors and actresses as well, the same thought, but she said that, um, in her near-death experience, as she was struggling to find something in her life to compare what she was experiencing in her near-death experience, she said her mind went back to the night that she walked off the stage after uh, playing that role for such a long period of time. And that night, the way she felt like leaving that role behind, she said that was the experience she had had in her life that was most comparable to that experience in her near-death experience that you immediately lose your interest in that body that you have been so attached to for such a time and that you your mind immediately shifts over to another state of existence and that kind of leads me to ask you more about, I know that you do some work with hypnotherapy and with past lives. And personally, do you, do you want to share some of what you believe or what, what you think in that area? Yeah, well, you know, I am a human, not because 
I got that stuff from Hume, but more that I remember when I started reading Hume as a undergraduate philosophy <laughs> major. That's what I thought anyway, you know. I so, but um, um, Hume said the great skeptic. He said that the he felt that the only kind of afterlife that a philosophical person could entertain as a possibility would be reincarnation. And he doesn't really go on much as to why he thought that, but I I think the same. I mean, I don't know it's the only one, but what I would say is, uh, yeah, I think that there is something like reincarnation, although I think that we have to be aware that we might not be able to the symbol systems that we use to think about it may not be valid within that next state of consciousness, right? So that we're just, but yes, and, and I should say that I, having gone to the University of Virginia, I knew some of those people like Ian Stevenson, I, who was the great uh, psychiatrist who studied um, uh, reincarnation. And I must say that I loved Ian dearly, and I'm not talking behind his back because these were the kind of conversations we had, but I don't think, Ian, if you, his version of scholarship was that if you got the footnotes right, everything was okay, but Ian just wasn't the best on critical thinking, especially if it was something that he believed or thought anyway. So. I don't get my take on reincarnation from um, the experts. I get my take on reincarnation from my kids. And yeah. um, because my wife and I have two adopted kids. You met one just a little while ago. Carter is now 20, and he's Mexican-American by heritage. We adopted him from Kerrville, Texas, at birth. And my daughter, Carol Ann, now 17, is a Blackfeet Indian from Montana. We, we, got, we made a bond with somebody on the reservation, an official there, and we just been very blessed to adopt at birth of a Native American daughter, which is, I tell you, that's an adventure. I'd like to write a book about that one day. And, you know well, what you say? She learned how to read somehow at age six before she went to school, and she started reading all these books on Pocahontas. Then one day at age six, she looked at me and my wife like this, and she said, were your people English? <laughs> <laughs> but um, also, my wife and I don't talk religion. We don't take these kids to religious services. And we don't talk about life after death. We talk about what's for dinner, you know, like what's the homework of the kids. And I mean, that's my profession and something I avoid when I'm home. It's just when I'm away that I'm talking about this stuff. So, um, and having a, you know, these kids, Carter came along when I was 54, Carol Ann when I was 57, I guess. So, um, you watch this age, and I know they weren't tainted by any religion or anything, but both of them have just spontaneously um, related past lives. And again, at a, just Carter, when he was five, 
we were sitting on the bed and watching TV, and I was using the remote control to flip through channels. And when I flipped through one particular channel, Carter became very animated and talking, chattering away. And he said, Dad, Dad, that's my village. I said, what? So I flipped it back, and it was a National Geographic special on um, Chinese village life. And he started to say, yeah, yeah, I said, it's in my village. You know, before I came to you and Mommy, I was in China with my other Mommy and Daddy and my brothers and sisters. And, and so he could tell that I was incomprehending. So as though to orient me, he said, yeah. And then I was up in the trees watching you and Mommy lying in the grass. And I knew exactly what he was talking about because five years before he came in, uh, Cheryl and I were in Greece and we were at an archaeological site and we were exhausted from the flight over. And so the attendant said, just lie down in the grass there and uh, take a nap. And there were trees all around and we were lying in the grass and the topic of conversation was adopting a baby. Wow. Then my Native American daughter, uh, probably eight years ago, just on one of our long walks, said out of nowhere, I don't like this place, plainly meaning the world. And so I was startled and she went on to say, yeah, you know, she said, when you die, you just go up and you be with God until all the people you know while you're alive have died. And then God sends you back as another person. And I said, well, what makes you think that? And she pointed inwardly, just like this. She just said, I know in my mind. And she said, and I was with God, and he pointed you out to me. And he said, you got to go down to be his daughter. And I said, well, how did you feel about that? And she said, oh, I didn't want to do it, but God pushed me. She's twice with her hands like this pushed me down to be your daughter. And I uh, said, well, are you glad you came anyway? And she said, yeah. Well, my philosophy and Cheryl's philosophy oh. is we don't talk to them about this stuff. I mean, they tell us stuff, but you're afraid that if you ask them questions, that would shape it. But right. it's, it's very interesting that b maybe because we don't ask questions, they remember these things. And I, I took uh, Carol Ann, my daughter, to Japan about a year ago, and I you know, teenagers don't like to sit on the same table with their parent, but I heard her sitting at a nearby table describing the people, this memory she had. Of, wow. um, and, and so, um, which is very interesting because I had two wonderful sons. I have two wonderful grown sons who are on their own now. And I had always wanted a daughter. And it, yet my wife at that time was, it was probably not the best thing to, for her to have another child. We were, and so in uh, spring of 1981 or 82, I was sitting on my swing in my back porch in Charlottesville, Virginia, and kind of realizing that a biological daughter was not in the offing, I, I uh, entertained a fantasy of adopting a Native American daughter. 
and mm. and I it wasn't like a prayer. It was just a little, and I never put any other effort into it. But it's just like 19 years later, it just sort of came about. With, yeah. What a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing those with me. I mean, those are the kind of stories that touch the heart because they have this emotional appeal. They have synchronicity. And I love it that you didn't try to shape their views by talking about these things. You easily, easily could have, you know, and then you would wonder if you planted the idea of reincarnation in their brain and it, it evolved very naturally. What do you, I really was taken by your daughter's thought about not wanting to be here on earth and as a near-death experiencer who talks publicly now I get a lot of people asking me about suffering that seems to be one of the main reasons that people come to near-death experiences either grief or loss or personal suffering and a wish for healing what do you think is the purpose of suffering and what have you have you seen a connection in interviewing near-death experiencers and the suffering and the joy of the afterlife the suffering that people speak of and, and often come to question well you know it's a little bit of shocking and maybe sounds a little bit irresponsible for a person who has a phd in philosophy and taught philosophy for years and then a medical doctor and psychiatrist and forensic psychiatrist as i was for a while that i wouldn't have an opinion on suffering but um <laughs> you know i remember i had that it's one of the papers I wrote as an undergraduate. I, I remember I said, I, I don't know what the purpose of suffering is, um, but it seems to be part of the dramatical format of life. I'm not sure that we would be a, would there, would, would a, would a life with no conflicts and no difficulties what would that be like? I can't even imagine. And the way I think of this, Tricia, is um, for many years I have asked people, let's say that you were diagnosed with some terrible infection that required you to be isolated on a desert island all alone for 10 years. And let's say that they could take you out there in a cargo plane with all the food and water and medicine you would need for 10 years. But they had a additional room in the cargo plane where there was room for like a DVD player. And let's say 5,000 DVDs. And so what I'd ask you is, would you choose all comedies? Now, over the years I've been asking that question, only three people have told me that they would choose all comedies. <laughs> and so then I said, so would you choose some tragedies too? And they say, well, sure. And I said, well, when you were out there on that desert island watching the tragedy, would you be crying? And they say, well, sure, that would be the purpose. That's the purpose of a tragedy. So, um, what I would say is that when, when I try to imagine it myself, let's say that I was in a state of consciousness that I knew that I had many lives to live. From that state of consciousness, I would choose all kinds of suffering. Um, you know, as a medical doctor, 
you know, it, I mean, at least in my case, when you hear people describing all these unusual symptoms and so on, you really want to know what that feels like inside. I, I remember being so curious. It's, it's some, some illnesses have such very unusual symptoms and you you really would like to know what the inner world of the patient is with this. <laughs> and I've heard that, so, I've heard that in medical school people feel like they have all different kinds of things. <laughs> they do. They... <laughs> that, that's right. Yeah, that second year you have all the illnesses. <laughs> you can you can be an and, young man with menopause, right? <laughs> that's right, exactly. So what I would say is um you know, I when I outside of this framework, you when you're inside this framework, you're not wanting to choose suffering. But when you're outside of the framework and know that it's a temporary thing, I can imagine that you might like to have various kinds of suffering, um, because it's, it's they say it's a learning experience, and I can say that I have learned from my illnesses. Actually, absolutely, I can. Yes, I I think too that you describe that perfectly. It's almost like part of a play. It's part of what we choose, and it's also a test of our spirit. So I've suffered greatly in this life, and I've felt that every time I've overcome a difficulty or I've gotten beyond a particular setback, I feel that I'm so strong, and I see people crumble with much less, and, and I think, oh no, try harder. You know, there's this part of me that wants people to rise to the challenge, and I think that's part of, of life is if you rise to meet this really difficult challenge, then you can bring others along with you and show them how to do it and how to overcome it. And it makes for really the best stories. I've At the end of it all, you know, I, I look back and I go, well, I'm grateful for my suffering. It's made for such a good story. You know, I wouldn't be an artist. Yeah. I wouldn't be a writer. I wouldn't be many things if it wasn't for suffering. <laughs> yes, yes, likewise. I mean, as unpleasant as the suffering I've been through was, in retrospect, I see that I've learned from it. Yes, yes. Right, and we help others who are struggling in the midst of it to perhaps get through it quicker. You know, that's what I look like. I look at as this progression of life. That's maybe part of evolution. Is if I can get through it this quick, someone else down the line can get through it even quicker, and that we're helping one another evolve in a sense. Oh, right. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> So I have some questions that I wrote down. I, I heard you talking in an interview once and you said that sometimes people listen to near-death experiences and they just stop. You know, they're just pleased with the story and then they're done with the story. And you think that they should keep talking about the concepts behind this, that it's, it's very yeah. important. So could you elaborate on that? Yes, again, this is Plato, Plato first pointed this out in the book that has influenced my life more than any other, which is Plato's Phaedo, which is reflections about the afterlife. And in the real world, there's never been anything that got beyond the Phaedo in terms of the, his articulation of the problems. But what Plato pointed out is that when you're trying to reason about the afterlife, he said there's always got to be a storyline because the notion of an afterlife afterlife is so obscure and even self-contradictory to most people life after death that's a self-contradiction really and the word the meaning of the words and so he said that um, 
there's got to be some story. And and we're in the same situation he was, and the same story. It's like you, and the story. Every, people knew these stories of people who almost died and returned and had these experiences. But Plato also pointed out that if you had a, even if you had a billion stories, it wouldn't add up to a proof of an afterlife. That what you need is some set of concepts that can lead you from the narrative reports of the experience to the statement that there is life after death. And that's what we still lack. And another difficulty here is see that you obviously enjoy conceptual thinking, having having taken a philosophy of mind course, and I enjoy conceptual thinking, and I suspect that you would agree with me that we, you and I are very rare, right? That to my astonishment, most people don't like to think of concepts and think through arguments and reasoning. They're you know, tell them stories and they're happy, but trying to get a concept across and their eyes sort of roll back in their heads. And so that is basically what keeps this from ever coming through to a satisfactory resolution that in order to to think logically about life after death, which people at least think they want to do, and, and if they do, if they really want to do that, then what's required is to reformat your mind, which actually thinks, call, um, requires thinking through some pretty, you know, some concepts. So, and that's the difficulty. And so, um, so let's lead some people in that direction. So say that we're talking to an agnostic, you know, and they always put forth, it's so boring, the same argument of, oh, this is just the brain shutting down and, you know, maybe consciousness stays around a little bit longer. Uh, what kind of concept would you give, granted a fairly smart person many times, who's agnostic to better understand the afterlife? Um, well, let me ask you this. Um, I could send you my manuscript about this and you could think it through and see what you think it is it sort of takes some time to do but i would love to do that and yeah and see what you think about it it's uh, but but basically what i think is that what you have to do to be able to think logically about life after death is that you you know the logic that you and i are using right now as we're thinking is based on literal meaning Right. right. Uh, and that's because of Aristotle uh, codified logic and his the statements that you use in logical proofs are like literal true or false statements. But the trouble is that when we talk about life after death, we're not talking in a literal mode of language that we're um, when you say, for example, that there is life after death. If you unpack the literal meaning of that, it is, there is life after the final irreversible cessation of life, which is a self-contradiction. So what we need to do is to reformat our minds to think logically about not just self-contradictions, but all the many other kinds of nonsense there are. And it seems so counterintuitive to say that there are kinds of nonsense but I have identified over 70 different types. Here are three, listen to these. 
Twas brilliant the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. You can tell that's nonsense, but that's one kind. But now listen to this. Holiness breeds the vestigial lipstick of spontaneity. That's yet another type. Or now listen to this type. That, man, that cannibal you men just ate was the last one in this county. That's yet another type. And, and so it turns out that by reformatting our mind to think logically, because nonsense, just like literal language, is a rule-governed activity. It's, it's governed by rules, just like regular meaningful language. And so when we reformat our minds to think logically about nonsense, then we come back to the question of life after death, then it it's it like it lights up. You see it in a whole different way. So if you would be willing to plow through my book, I would love to send it to you. Oh, yeah, that would be very interesting. Then we, and then, then we could have another conversation. <laughs> and you could say, but I would I would greatly appreciate your your uh, comments on. Oh, yeah. This. And as you were talking, I was thinking maybe it's life after body, <laughs> you know, in, in the sense that, you know, it, the body dies, but there's still life that is out there. There's still consciousness. So that after body experience is maybe, maybe what needs to be focused on in the language. But also, as you were saying, the three different types of, of nonsense, one was clearly humor. So humor can be a form of nonsense. And there might be different oh, layers of it. Absolutely. Kant said, as a matter of fact, he thought that Whenever anything is funny, there's always an element of nonsense in it, he said. But, um, yeah, I would love to do that. So I'll get, I'll get that sent to you, and then we can, uh, then if you're interested in it, then I'd love to hear you know, your, what you think about it. Because yeah. um, I think that we are into a whole new era now on how to reason logically about this really big question. So do you think poet Poetry is also another way to talk about the near-death experience. Exactly. exactly. As a matter of fact, uh, it's, I have many cases of people who, in their last few hours or days of life, um, recited poetry or sometimes made up poetry on the spot as part of the dying process. And that, uh, the first case of that was reported by Plato. Socrates was doing that in the life days of his life he was writing poetry which is very unusual well i believe that it comes from a place of intuition poetry so it could be the soul's language at times and so it could be the soul speaking to you in my mfas and in contemporary poetry and for a long time before i wrote the memoir about my near-death experience i only expressed spiritual things through poetry that was my medium because I felt I could be yeah. honest here in the South, <laughs> you, you know, about about some of these experiences and hide it in imagery and in the language of poetry. So I think maybe people feel safer expressing these concepts through yeah. poetry. Do you think that's part of it? Could be. So you must have been from where? Upstate New York or the Midwest? Oh, no, I'm from Texas. So I still live in oh, Texas. Yeah. Oh, you so you're from Texas. Yeah, I've moved around quite a bit, but I'm mm. from Texas. So, yeah, the 
certain parts of the country are not as open to this kind of stuff <laughs> and you know the south is notoriously not but i find that so many people are drawn because they secretly want to talk about these experiences so they're drawn to i'm sure you and me and, and others so I do want to hear just a little bit more about the nonsense. So what is this nonsense project? How did it start? Like, how did you begin? Well, actually, this is my oldest uh, project. When I was oh. a kid, um, my first interest was astronomy. That's why I went to the University of Virginia, actually, to study astronomy. But uh, when I was a kid, I realized that this world we're in doesn't make sense because it's like when you try to think about what size and shape this thing we're in is you you know you, it doesn't make any sense it, you, if you try to imagine it ends in a wall then you can ask what's on the other side of the wall but when you try to think of it going on and on and on and on with no limit that doesn't make sense either so when I was a kid I loved um, Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge comics written by a wonderful Disney artist named Carl Barks who inspired, uh, among many others, Spielberg and Lucas were both yes. inspired comics. And uh, also um, Lewis Carroll, uh, through, uh, through the Looking Glass and Alice in Wonderland, and also Dr. Seuss. So um, to make a long story short, when I was a kid, I realized I was very interested in nonsense. And I realized there were different types of nonsense. So when I majored in philosophy, that uh, nonsense is one of the big concepts of analytic philosophy. So I, um, I followed that up. I did my doctoral dissertation, and I've continued to work on this for decades. And basically now have published a book, which is published in France, but not in the U.S. I, I have a apparently an a possible publisher now so um, and it basically it turns out that nonsense uh, is a is not like you know most people if this is the level here of ordinary meaningful language most people think of nonsense as something down here like of sublinguistic but in actuality when you think it through you realize that nonsense is a more complicated modality of language actually and as a it's a higher level of organization of language. And so basically, I had been studying all this. And then when I went to uh, medical school, um, I began to notice that patients with various kinds of illnesses, like delirium or intoxication by ethylene gas or mercury or various kinds of things, or severe stress, like people coming into the ER who are not uh, injured, but they've had a horrible, seen a horrible wreck or whatever, that people talk nonsense when they are ill. But what I realized was that the nonsense that people talk involuntarily when they are ill reflects the same patterns and types that, uh, that nonsense writers like Dr. Seuss write. So that's the insight I've been working on, and it's, um, 
it's really stimulating some interest. So I'm really Very happy cool. about this. And I could see why France might be open to it because of all the surrealistic poets, and and I, exactly. I love surrealism, and so that's and Dada, and that's yes. right. That's, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Plus, there's they're into reason, whereas Americans, we kind of left that side of life, but the French are still in, into reason. And, um, yeah, I, what I'm so excited about now, as you know, working with Lisa, my, my friend Lisa Smart. Yes, yes. Um, and I have a, a sort of internet learning portal that we've opened to, um, to teach people about these things. And yes, it's, the University uh, of Heaven. I was going to ask you a little bit about that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's www.theuniversityofheaven.com, and um, and I'm just really excited about this because at 74, it's kind of getting harder and harder to travel around. And uh, I've always loved teaching, so um, opening up this portal on October the 30th. We're having a free webinar uh, where I'm going to talk about the thought process that has led me to the um, the thought that, yeah, to my astonishment, there is life after death. And then we're going to be interviewing all sorts of great people with near-death experiences. Evan Alexander um, yes. will be the first one, and then we're going to interview... Um, Lots of really great doctors who have had near-death experiences or who have studied them. And which is fascinating. And I, I know Lisa very well. She wrote the foreword to my book. And I am going to, uh, this summer, last summer, I had the first annual near-death experience summit. And I'm going to get together oh, another great. group and run it through your website, which I'm so excited about because I think... Working together is just a wonderful way to bring more attention to these concepts and yeah. to start interacting with the public. Tricia, I want to thank you for that, too, because, um, you know, sadly, it's the, what has happened with this near-death field, as you know, is that a lot of um, imposters and charlatans and so on have and, and it's become, for some people, almost a religion or a religious sect or a cult. And so I think what you're doing is so refreshing that uh, to look at this with a fresh approach. And uh, I think a lot of the people in some of the organizations have their minds crystallized now. They have um, just this one way of looking at this that they developed back in the 70s and they don't want to move beyond that so my the point of that long-winded dissertation is thank you for what you're doing oh you're so welcome thank you for what you're doing too and it you know it's it's interesting to me why anyone would want to fake this or be a charlatan because those of us i think who have had a real experience can energetically tell you know, them, you know whether someone has had a real experience or not so it becomes yeah it's not something you can truly fake with and, and have that authenticity of uh That's after right. effects so those after effects to me can't be denied, you know, that I short computers out, that I, you know, like my energy gets too high for things. I'm not contained within my body. And I think a lot of true near-death experiencers have that phenomenon. That's yeah, something I, I would love to study. The, 
Yeah, I've seen a couple, uh, a couple, and there are not many of these, but they do occur, and it's just a couple, three or four that I'm thinking of, but, you know, they always, whatever they're asked, they always give a definite answer, yes or no, whatever, and so anybody who does that, you can tell they haven't really been there, because it's people who've really been through this have, um, you know, they're very reflective and careful in what they say. Yeah, because even experiencing the things that I've experienced, I can't say that definitively, you know, it means this. I only know that there were light beings who worked through the surgeons. They could have a multitude of reasons for being there. They could have a multitude of ways that they were helping me heal. I can't definitively say because it was so unusual. It was, you know, outside of the context of what I experienced in in this reality. So yeah, there's there's always more questions. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. Um, and I did want to end with just one brief question. This is like from other people who often come to me and ask this question. But what do you think is the ultimate, you know, from a philosopher's point of view, you gave me a question or you answered beautifully my question about suffering. What do you think is the point of continuing to come back here and learn all these fractured le lessons? when everything is perfect and beautiful there, you know, when I didn't want to come back from my new yeah, experience. Yeah. It was love, it was um, pure, it was, it was wonderful. Yes, and I, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to your question, but I'm concerned about it in the same way you are. And um, I, um, there's this thought in many cultures who entertain the idea of reincarnation that at a certain point, you can kind of step off the wheel, and um, I am at that point. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm ready to step off the wheel. I, if I'm given the choice whether to come back along this rigmarole, I don't, I don't know that I would. And, uh, but it's it's just really interesting. And all of these things I'm saying, I am. Uh, hedging to the extent that I realized that we can't really know from this framework, right? And right. and my opinion may be very different when I get into a different framework. But um, I just, you know, what people tell me is that as soon as you're out of your body, you're into a timeless and spaceless framework, right? And... For the rest of us, it's really hard to imagine what that would be like. And, uh, but I do know. I mean, I accept that. Um, you know, what can I say? Like I said, some of my best friends have been dead, and uh, <laughs> they are medical doctors. That if I, heaven forbid, if I had a medical problem, I ask myself, would I would I go as a patient to my medical doctor friends who've had near-death experiences, and absolutely I would. So I trust their medical judgment. So what basis do I have to distrust their unanimous opinion they all had that what they experienced was another dimension of existence? Yeah, yeah. Well, beautiful answer. Thank you for sharing your stories with me and a little bit of your research and interest. And I, I'm looking forward to reading your manuscript. I think it'll be fascinating. Great. Thank you. And I'm Thank you so much, Patricia. This has just been delightful. I'm sorry about my ineptitude with this uh, 
equipment, but I'm glad it worked out like it did. Oh, yes, it has been wonderful. So I'm just going to end here and thank you, Dr. Moody, and thank you everyone for listening. Please check out the links to University of Heaven below and the various places that I'll put below this video. And you can stay in touch with me and Dr. Moody through our website.